You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Barbara Ehrenreich is the author of Nickel and Dimed and Bait and Switch. Her new book is This Land is Their Land. Thank you for joining me, Barbara. Glad to be with you, Vic. Um, Barbara, this book offers us a rather scary look at the class divide and the distribution of wealth in the wake of 9-11. And one thing that you talk about is that we used to have this kind of idea of the rich and the poor, but now there are different levels of rich and poor, aren't there? Well, there are certainly different levels of rich. I mean, what rich used to mean uh, was sort of the old wasp rich. You know, they they wore a faded chino. Well, can you wear can chinos fade? Well, they wear sort of faded, expensive clothes. They had second homes in Nantucket, um, you know, and and fancy cars and things. And now there's a layer on top of that which makes that crew look like, well, at best, quote, affluent, which is not very good at all. Uh, the super rich, and these are the, the people who consume private jets and have many homes, uh, have uh, whole staffs to manage their many homes, and they do just about everything for them, uh, from, you know, parting, doing their, setting up their entertaining, raising their children, uh, you know, there's just not much they have to do for themselves. We don't interact with them much because they're in their private jets. They're in helicopters to get to their private jet airports. They're uh, in limousines with tinted glass windows. We just don't see, you know, we're not like to, likely to interse- intersect with them very often at all. Now, and one thing your book made me think of is an old quote, which was that the smartest thing the devil ever did was to convince people that he didn't exist. And, and I think this, that what your book points out, that this is somewhat true of the war of the rich against the poor, the, the, the kind of the class war. Yeah, and it's not just the rich against the poor. It's, it's increasingly uh, them against everybody else, including people who are not even that far below them. One of the things, and one essay here, you know, I think starts out with the um, surprising to me fact that the, the the growing gap between the CEO and the third in command. Wow, now that's an interesting yeah, I know, gap. Well, we don't you know, hear I about. always sort of thought they were all up there, the same. You know, that there was a, at least at that level, they operated as something like a team. But no, there's a scramble there with that gap widening all the time too. And you see a, a similar kind of splitting, uh, you know, not so dramatic, but, well, kind of dramatic, but say in, in areas like academia, the division between the star professors who make, who can make $300,000 a year just from their academic pay alone, and then the <clears throat> struggling army of adjunct professors who are really desperately low-paid people. You know, sometimes moonlighting and cleaning people's homes or something like that. You see a gap in the legal profession between the partners of important firms who make, you know, you know, can make in the millions, uh, to lawyers who work in virtual sweatshops 
one of the things you point out in this book is that a lot of the innovations recently haven't been necessarily way, better ways to make us richer or smarter, but better ways to exploit the workers. Could you talk about that? Well, I was talking about productivity in America. You know, America uh, has done very well in terms of productivity. We have high productivity uh, compared to many uh, nations. But um, only part of that represents technology. The other is just uh, improvements in the technology of squeezing more out of workers. And there, there are so many ways of doing it, Over, overworking people, overloading people. Uh, you see that even you know, with um, uh, psychologists who uh, work for an agency and uh, you know, get, find themselves with constantly shrinking number of minutes uh, with which to evaluate um, uh, their clients. Uh, you see it um, in the form um, most notoriously of wage theft, where an employer makes you work longer than you're paid, for, paid to work. Uh, you know, that can just take the form of saying you have to be in here uh, at 8.30, although your job starts at 9, because we expect you to be, you know, have your desk all ready to go or something, you know, have some excuse like that. Or Walmart telling people that um, they have to punch out and then come back to work. In other words, a paid part of your day is over, and now you're going to volunteer for the corporation. So there are so many ways that productivity has been driven up that have actually undercut the status of working people. You know, wages are supposed to go up when productivity goes up. But the opposite has happened here. It's really interesting to to see uh, how amazingly productive American workers are and how uh, little their reward is. And I think one of the things that you talk about, too, is that uh, the way that we are distracted from from the facts of the matter. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the distractions, as everybody knows, have been things like uh, abortion and gay rights and stem cell research and things like that, which are sometimes, some politicians present as the major issues to concern us, or I guess illegal immigration goes into that into that list, uh, rather than looking at those things that are actually directly affecting people's lives. Well, this idea of illegal aliens, uh, um, this isn't, isn't new, too. This happened uh, just after the Depression, uh, when they were uh, deporting Mexicans, and it was far far more uh, virulent than it was now, but it also points out to where we could be headed as well, doesn't it? Oh, I didn't know about that. Uh, yeah, there was a Quite, quite a, a crackdown on illegal immigration after, after the Depression. Now, one of the things you also talk about, too, the flip side of scaring us is um, to make us feel happy. Now, traditionally, this has often been the, the uh, purview of uh, organized religion, uh, offering us, you know, the gates of heaven if we're only willing to be poor <laughs> and uh, hardworking during our life. But uh, these days you talk about uh, some more interesting phenomena, like the, the books about wishing and, and the Harry Potter, Potter magic series. Well, I think there's a lot of magical thinking in our society, and it has something to do with our, our current economic problems. Uh, the dominant uh, sort of philosophy, uh, both in... Uh, Protestant religious forms and in uh, the secular world has been positive thinking, uh, that, that you can have whatever you want if you just concentrate on it hard enough. Uh, 
it's interesting to me that Angelo Mazzillo of uh, Country, the former CEO of Countrywide uh, Mortgage, who, you know, as much as any one man led us into the credit meltdown, uh, was a, a few couple of years ago was awarded the Norman Vincent Peale Award for Positive Thinking. <laughs> you know, just hope it'll be true and act as if it would be true. You know, uh, this is uh, evident in our foreign policy. It's um, it, it's something that something that Americans constantly hear at work. You know, be positive. Don't complain. Don't whine. Um, well, Phil Graham most recently told us not to whine about the economy. Nothing really wrong with it at all. That couldn't be changed by just uh, changing your attitude. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, I- I'm finding that changing my attitude isn't really a big help in, like, uh, putting money in my bank account. <laughs> well, maybe you're not focusing hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's some lingering bits of negativity that are keeping you back. That's what they would say. That's what they might try to say. Now, your book is is divided into a, a series of really interesting sections, and I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about uh, writing these essays. They're they're short, they're punchy, they're often very funny in a kind of a, a painful fashion. Uh, could you talk about the kind of painful humor that that you uh, evoke with these uh, brief visions of how things are? Well. I think a, a good example would be um, uh, the essay on um, veterinary care for children. Uh, <laughs> it sounds funny. I mean, it sounds kind of disturbing by itself. But I was very, very upset when Bush vetoed more than once S-CHIP, an expansion of the state um, children's health insurance plan, uh, programs, mm-hmm. and. There are there are known instances of uh, children who have died for lack of very simple kinds of medical care uh, that as I but that they couldn't get because their family had no insurance and no no money for it and as I thought about some of these deaths uh, like a a little boy who died from an abscessed tooth I thought hey a vet could do that you know and <laughs> so I thought well. This is, you know, people are dying for lack of such basic things. So that's what that's what inspired the essay, then, um, which kinds of presents the possibility of a fallback demand if we can't have universal health insurance. And that's, could we please have veterinary care for everybody? Well, this is a, a very Jonathan Swift approach to uh, uh, matters, isn't it? Who is this Swift guy? He must be constantly imitating me because people always bring him up. Um, uh, <laughs> one, one thing that I really liked was your vision of uh, your, your take, Miami Vice, the, the recent movie remake, as a vision of the class war. Could you explain that, how that oh, works? Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed the movie, actually. Um, this is, I guess, from a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but what struck me about it so much when I watched it is that it presents a world in which there are only the super rich and a sort of underclass of poor people. There's nothing in between. It, you know, t- historically or typically in the detective genre, the detective, the police represent the middle class. But in the movie Miami Vice, Crockett and Tubbs have no, um, no material life. 
they only live in when they live anywhere, when they sleep anywhere at all, you know, in some kind of bare apartment provided them for them by the vice squad or whatever they work for. Um, there's there's just no sign that they have any existence, like a families or even they don't even eat, so you don't know what they eat. They never eat in a movie. So you just have these people who kind of dwell at the very top of the world, almost literally, um, and go with Jeff wherever they want to, uh, at the, you know, on a, on any whim, and these kind of poor people milling around, providing a kind of third world background, and that that just uh, kind of struck me as a as a vision of what we're coming to. Uh, do Do you think that the filmmaker and, and the writers of the film were aware of this, or do you think that it just bubbled up out of the uh, un, the cultural unconscious? I don't know. I don't know. I have no way of knowing what they were thinking. One thing that you talk about that I think, as a parent of two children in college, uh, scares me are college costs and income inequality. Could you talk about that? Oh, <laughs> you college-age kids? Yes. And they want to go to college? Uh, w- one of them is actually almost going to complete it. I'm going to knock on wood here. Yes, I'm, he, he's got a year left. Oh, you see, you, you um, made a big mistake. You should have done everything you could have uh, to stop them from going to college. Really? Oh, yeah. Uh, starting when they're very young, um, you know, no baby Einstein stuff. Just put them in front of the television, you know. You, you got to, you've got to protect yourself. <laughs> well, they might be more prepared for what the, the employment landscape that's going to greet them when they graduate it one day. Oh, that's right. You could have them bust the dishes after dinner, learn uh, a few, you know, food service skills that way. But no, I'm uh, seriously. <laughs> this is just takes it gouges the assets of middle class families when their kids hit college age. Just take this huge chunk. You're supposed to be saving for retirement, too, but there it all goes. Uh, now, I'm, I want to say I'm all really, in real life, all for higher education. Probably the more irrelevant that it is to making a living, the, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to see a lot more people studying, um, I don't know, degrees. number theory or <laughs> particle physics, really. Mm-hmm. And things that where the results will ultimately be of some interest to me as a reader um, and thinker. But, you know, there's no guarantee that college is going to uh, provide anybody now with a middle-class lifestyle. It's just we just don't generate enough uh, jobs for all the college graduates we turn out. And, and it's interesting, too, that uh, how heavily college kids are marketed to to go into debt so that once you get a they the idea seems to be to begin the debt cycle early uh, my both my children get at least three or four solicit credit card solicitations per week from I, most of them are from a bank called Capital One Bank uh, um, offering them you know ten thousand dollar credit limit mm. when, when they can I mean they can't even buy themselves hamburgers at this point Right, and that's not even counting the debt from college tuition. Now, last time I looked at it, that was an average of $20,000 per um, graduate. I don't know, it may well have gone up. But, 
you know, that's so you start your life with this big debt, which is, uh, you know, close to what you might hope to earn in a, in a year. And that means that seriously limits what you can think of as a job, what you want to do with your life. And it also so, prevents uh, you from getting any kind of property that you can inherit and pass down to the, the your children could inherit as well, doesn't it? Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, it's hard to it's hard to uh, take on a, a mortgage when you're um, when you're already a hundred thousand dollars in debt to your college. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, one thing that that I I thought was really interesting was that you point out how it costs more to be poor than it does to be rich. Well, if you're very poor, you you might not have to pay for college tuition. <laughs> you, you might have that advantage in that the public schools your children went to were so poor that college will not be an option for them. Uh, but there are, you know, this was something I discovered when working on Nickel and Dimed, is that, um, you know, that it, like, for example, in the case of housing, it would be, it's cheaper, uh, it obviously makes more sense to get an apartment than to stay in a motel every night. And yet people end up staying in very low-end motels because they can't get together that first month's rent and and security deposit that you need to get into an apartment. And then there are all the ways, that sort of ghetto taxes, as they've been called, ways in which it's more expensive to be in a poor neighborhood. You have to pay more for your car insurance, uh, probably pay more for a mortgage. Well, I don't know what anybody's anybody's getting any mortgages anymore. Um, everything becomes more expensive. Uh, you might not have access to a decent supermarket. Uh, you, so you're, you know, stuck with uh, little um, little markets, little bodegas, whatever, or convenience stores, of which, in addition to everything else, are much more expensive uh, than being able to go to a big supermarket. I, it, it's interesting, too, to realize, to even think that Henry Ford used to want to make sure that his workers made enough to buy his own products. I mean, that whole concept seems weird and kind of foreign and almost creepy now, doesn't it? Yeah, but, you know, Henry Ford had a, that was a great capitalist insight, that if you were going to make a product like Ford cars, you wanted it to be something that your workers themselves could afford to buy, taking your workers as representative of the public. And that's why he made the uh, remarkable move of deciding to pay his workers uh, $5 a day back at the turn of the 20th century, or early 20th century, I don't know exactly the year. You know, he understood that, that you, you could not continue. You can't have a consumer economy unless you have peop- workers who can also be consumers. Now, somewhere along the way, that, that insight was completely lost. And when you see, um, you know, as I did working on Nickel and Dime, you see Walmart employees who can barely afford, and in some cases absolutely not afford, the stuff that's in Walmart, um, our largest employer, our largest private sector employer, you know, that, that spells trouble. Ours is a consumer economy. Seventy percent of the economy it depends on, consu- you know, consumer spending. And when we don't make enough to be consumers anymore, uh, then the whole thing is in trouble, as we now know. 
with so many people in so much trouble, financial trouble now, you might expect or, or we might hope that we in America would find a way to be more charitable to these people. But uh, as you recount, uh, with meanness on the rise, that's not the case, is it? Uh, well, um, I'm not thinking so much of charity, but I'm thinking of the, you know, the traditional way um, uh, societies try, as capitalist societies anyway, have tried to um, defend people from the vagaries of the market is through some kind of government effort. You know, we do have some, we have food stamps, we have Medicaid, uh, the very inadequate programs, not reaching enough people. But, you know, that has, you know, these things have been uh, pared away over the years. The safety net is just not there. And it interests me, too, that... um, you you talk about people going to to prison for for penury. I mean, this is straight out of Les Misérables. We <laughs> we we were ratcheting back not just to the 1950s. We're ratcheting back to the 1750s. Yeah, no, that's a, 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 a that's a certainly an amazing case of a fellow. I think he was 62 years old who um, was unemployed, laid off, uh, held up a bank. Rather, he didn't have a gun. He just walked into the bank and told the teller he wanted $80. She gave him the money, and then he just waited at the door of the bank for the police to come, and he surrendered, turned over the money. When he got to court, he explained to the judge that um, he had three more years before he qualified for Medicare or Social Security, and he would like to be able to go to prison for that period. And uh, the the judge... uh, Obliged, and I guess that's what we call compassionate conservatism. <laughs> I could do without that form of compassion myself. And one of the things that's, I think, most shocking to a lot of people, and we see this actually mentioned a lot in the newspaper, is the way that military families are treated. It's fairly surprising that that the same people who would hurdle us into war would would treat military families so poorly. Yeah, and, and that inspired one essay here, because a, a very serious essay, because that is such a historical anomaly. Um, the welfare state uh, in European and Amer- in, in the Euro-American tradition uh, arose really with the rise of mass armies, huge armies, and an understanding by governments like the Prussian, Prussian government in the late 19th century that if you're going to have a mass army, you have to have a working class that is, you know, healthy enough to produce it. Uh, you have to um, take care of them, you know, the, the class that produces the soldiers. And so that's, you know, why after World War II, Britain uh, created its rather generous welfare state. Um, we got some expansions in this country after World War II. But now, uh, you know, it, it just it baffles me that uh, the government could be so um, indifferent uh, to the working class and the working poor that that it depends on uh, for its armed forces, and then to let them come back and not have adequate health care 
or medical care, even for injuries and uh, problems incurred in war, is this is something historically very new. And it's very scary because, <laughs> you know, you're saying to working class people, we'll train you to kill, uh, use explosives and guns, uh, and then we'll use you for a while, and then we're going to throw you back out uh, into the low-wage job market and see how you do. Well, actually, we're not going to care how you do. That's what produces people like Timothy McVeigh. Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a lesson learned by many ancient civilizations that if you keep a standing army or mercenaries, you you treat them well because they actually know how to use the weapons, and maybe you don't know how to know this so well. Well, yeah, put very bluntly, I think that you know has always been a concern that. Uh, you know, if you're going to train people to kill, you should also have them be really, really loyal uh, to uh, the, the government that did so. And, and now one way to, to do this is uh, – and you mentioned this as an, as an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon, again, is the, the idea of shaming the un- unemployed. And this is something that people who are unemployed who lose their jobs or step out of their jobs for one reason or another – they don't do so without feeling really bad, and you suggest that that we shouldn't feel bad, should we? Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, people are made to feel bad for the ways in which they were victimized. Uh, if you are laid off, you know, that has nothing to do with you. In fact, you could, you could be a very good worker and be laid off maybe even for that reason, because you were, uh, what you were doing, um, your accomplishments had led to slightly higher pay. So you're all the more, re- all the more reason to cut you out. Um, you know, it has nothing to do with you. And yet, uh, if you can get people to blame themselves, well, and turn their anger against themselves, well, what could be better? I mean, the analogy would be, uh, those societies like, uh, Saudi Arabia where a woman who charges uh, rape can be punished herself. Remember that woman, young woman who was supposed to get 20 lashes sure, sure. Uh, last year because mm-hmm. uh, when she charged uh, some men with gang rape? Uh, because, you know, well, I mean, I, I forget exactly the reason for the charge, but she shouldn't have been with men. Um, she, she was an adulteress if she let this happen, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a wonderful method of social control to make people be ashamed of those things that have been done to them. It's a classic uh, blame the victim syndrome taken into an economic realm, isn't it? Yes. One thing that I have to ask is uh, you, I'm guessing that this book came out this year. You must have written much of it last year, am I correct? Or in the... Well, it's been uh, written, oh, I think probably maybe the earliest essays go back to a three or something. So, um, but in the past year, we've seen a serious acceleration of the spiraling downward of the American economy. And I'm wondering how you you feel about that, having written this, this seems extremely prescient, but, and sometimes it almost seems, perhaps, do you feel it's a little mild, given how bad things have gotten, how fast? Well, that had started when I was still, you know, there's some essays in here that reflect that, like uh, there's one called Smashing Capitalism, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, about the credit meltdown that started about a year ago 
And there's one here called, oh, yes, Desperately Seeking Stimulus about the attempts to uh, create a stimulus package. Yeah, no, so this goes right right into this uh, this downturn. And now, one thing I, I found was, was really interesting and kind of scary was your, your hell day at work section with the Circuit City layoff. Could you talk, describe what happened with the Circuit City layoff and, and maybe talk about that as an indicator of what we can expect going forward in the future? Well, at, at the end of 06, uh, Circuit City laid off 3,400 people because they had been around too long and were thus earning uh, somewhere in the 10 to $20 an hour range. They were fired, told that after a little cooling off period of, I think, six weeks, they could come back and reapply for their jobs at the minimum wage. Now, this, this is a new trend. I mean, Walmart has done the same thing, not the same thing in terms of firing people, but uh, capping the amount you can ever earn as a Walmart associate, as they're called. You know, the, so tenure doesn't matter. Doing a good job doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, you, there's all the more reason to want to cut your pay if you've been around, to, uh, you know, if you've begun to earn too much. Uh, I, I've actually seen this happen in a couple, you know, of uh, recent local places where a company will buy a new company and essentially make life so unpleasant for those who have been with these local companies, venerable local companies, for years and years and years that the people at top leave and they're replaced essentially by people who are 20 years younger than them, know nothing, and uh, are but are a heck of a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's the trend. Now, we, we've heard a lot of talk about whether or not we're in a recession and what it means to be in a recession and how a recession is defined and how inflation is defined. And it seems to me that, that they cut out a lot of the most pertinent, pertinent data when they decide whether or not we're in a recession or a depression at this point. Well, the way recession is defined technically and there are different ways, but what I know about it, it all depends on the GDP, on whether it's growing or not, uh, whether we're experiencing economic growth. Now, the trouble with that is we've been, exper- we've been experiencing economic growth uh, in the years leading up to 07, but with no improvement in wages for working people. So growth has been decoupled, just like productivity has been decoupled. Uh, from, uh, you know, people's standard of living. And I'm really not interested in whether this is called a recession or not technically. It's hard times. And that's why, you know, in polls, about 80% of people will say, yeah, it's a recession, because they mean by that what they're experiencing. You know, what, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, not, I'm just not impressed with what has to do with uh, so-called growth. Well, one of the ways that they like to, you're encouraged to stay at work, you talk about this, and I love this idea, is are the, the cheerleaders, the, the kind of seminars you'll be subjected to at work, the kind of workplace meetings, where, and, and this, what you point out is they, they're there to make you feel what you call pre-firing shame. And I, I love that idea. Could you talk a little bit about Wait, that? What is that? What, what's that phrase again? Pre-firing shame. So that you're what kind of shame? <laughs> uh, pre-firing before you're pre-firing. fired. Yeah, pre before you're fired, make you feel. Oh. Be, 
Did I say that? <laughs> but, well, um, that's the, that's what came to me as I read it. This this idea that when you're in these um, meetings, that you know, work harder, not smart, work smarter, work harder, make you know, to increase your productivity. The the flip side of that is if you're not doing that, you're you're going to get fired, and you're already they're building up the inverse of the shame that you're going to feel before you're fired by encouraging you to work harder now. Yeah, actually, this is the subject, or uh, very much a part of the book I'm working on now, uh, which is about positive thinking in American culture, and part of it, uh, you know, has to do with the the use of motivational techniques in the workplace. Uh, to uh, constantly uh, urge people on to higher levels of effort uh, and, and, of course, to blame themselves if they, if they are fired. Well, that sounds like a, a fascinating book. Uh, you, and here you also talk about the Employee Free Choice Act. And, and I wonder if you'd care to comment on the demise of the union over the past, you know, 50 years. And, and it, it strikes me that one of the places where we really missed an, where unions missed an opportunity to um, uh, implant themselves in, in the American culture and in the American business culture is in the information technology world where it was pretty much ruthlessly beat down. And that now you have a lot of, when the computer world and the information technology world was first created, those people were, were you know, white collar workers with a lot of knowledge, but now that knowledge has been codified and kind of dumbed down and set down to a series of procedures. So we've created a whole new, uh, essentially a whole new form uh, of blue collar, uh, lower class workers who yet have a lot of knowledge. Oh, yes. I have some of them in my extended family, you know, who went into computer, uh, the computer field because it was the, you know, the, the big new thing to go into and now face uh, contract work at like $12 an hour, which is not you know, a professional level of pay by any means. But the unions have been weakened mainly by the fact that it is so difficult to organize. And you know, the U.N. recognizes the right of workers to organize into a union or an association of some kind as a universal human right. Well, we doesn't, it doesn't exist in America. I mean, you can, you can be fired uh, for union activity. Now, you know, according to the National Labor Relations Board, you're not, uh, Labor Relations Board, you're not supposed to do that, but who's, you know, who's suing? Who's, uh, you know, they, and if they, they don't, um, they're not going to fire you because you're a union activist directly, they'll, they'll say something else, like you have a bad attitude and you have no, no rights at work that uh, prevent that kind of completely unfair firing for essentially political reasons. Well, now, I'm, I've read, I think, in a David Sirota column recently about a case where they're looking at uh, perhaps trying to be able to create uh, a, a civil right to, to organize, as opposed to, because as you point out now, the only recourse you have is to go to the National Labor Relations Board, which is about as appealing as going to the IRS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I read that column, too, where he quotes Tom Gagan. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an old friend of mine who, with whom I have often, um, you know, discussed exactly this issue, um, you know, how can, what are, what are some ways to um, get some fundamental rights for workers? 
I mean, workers have no rights in America. We, you walk into the you walk into work and you leave your all your civil rights behind. Uh, you can't be fired on the grounds of gender, religion, or I think there's something else. Um, you know, there are a few things, mm-hmm. but that's it. You have no right of free speech, no right of assembly, no privacy rights, uh, and no no freedom from arbitrary firing. Uh, you you have a, a, a another phrase I kind of like the corporate layoff and surrender monkeys. <laughs> Could you talk about where that comes from? Uh, it, it's really uh, uh, one of those phrases that is funny, but also kind of extremely frightening. I was talking about the French strikes two uh, two years ago mm-hmm. over just this issue of job security. Mm-hmm. Uh, a new law was uh, going to be introduced that would take away guarantees of job security from younger workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you just have to think about that sentence for a minute, because we have no such guarantee for any worker in this country. Right, right. It's a- and so the French rioted uh, for days, uh, burning cars, you know, all, all the traditional riot-type things. And I just thought this was funny, because, uh, you know, not so long ago, the start of the Iraq War, uh, jingoists in this country were calling the French uh, cheese-eating surrender monkeys. And yet they seem to have so much more backbone when it comes to defending their own, their own rights at work, yeah. their economic rights. Mm-hmm. Barbara, could you tell me uh, about writing these essays? A- as you conceive of each, each essay, it seems like there are just this kind of sp- about spurt of pure energy. Could you talk about sitting down to write one of these essays? Do they just come out in one shout? <laughs> well, I, I, no. Um, each of them <laughs> represents a great deal of uh, agony uh, and, this, you know, good agony, creative agony. Uh, you know, I don't just sit down and write and stuff just comes out. I get interested in something, get a glimmer of idea, uh, I spend hours and hours on research, uh, typically Internet research. Sometimes I'll, you know, often I'll, I'll call people, too, and interview people. Or maybe I have some direct kind of reporting experience with whatever is going on. And then, you know, it just has to congeal into an essay. Uh, and that's where the, the real uh, struggle goes on. Uh, there's, there's nothing easy about it. It's fun in the end. But there are always times in the middle of it when you say, gee, I'm th- do I really have anything to say here? Do I have anything new or interesting to say? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's work. Could, could you talk about uh, creating this book out of the essays? Did you have all the essays um, written and assemble them into the book? Or did you um, come up with some of the, the, the meta themes that you talk about, the class divide, inequality, meanness on the rise, strangling the middle class and such, and then f- create essays to fit within those topics? Oh, no. The topic, the, uh, head, the sort of general categories were created after I had uh, a big body of uh, collection of essays. Uh, you know, the be- I had began to see about a year ago that there, wa- there were some common themes coming through. And my editor, my book editor, had uh, suggested trying to assemble some sort of anthology. And then, but then I kept writing essays all along. But 
no, I, I didn't have the uh, the template and then fit the essays into it. And could you tell us a little bit more? You alluded to your next book um, about positive thinking in America. Could you tell us a little bit more about that book? Well, it's about positive thinking in American culture and how evil it is. And I uh, look at workplace issues. I look at um, health, you know, the area of health where we've often been told positive thinking will prevent or cure disease. Uh, cancer is a favorite. Um, It'll look at religion and the rise of the positive thinking evangelists like Joel Osteen, um, Benny Hinn, and others, uh, replacing Christianity essentially with um, just positive thinking. Well, that sounds fascinating. We'll look forward to that. I've been speaking with Barbara Ehrenreich. She's the author of Nickel and Dimed and Bait and Switch. Her new book is This Land is Their Land. Thank you for joining me, Barbara. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mm-hmm.